0: been here before in the middle of a great game with good friends and it's your turn and you want to do x the thing about x is it's your best move but there's a catch if you do x and the next player well if she does y then x won't achieve what you want at all but you don't know what she's gonna do and more importantly you don't know if she knows what you want to do next but you have a guess so you make your move and do z At that moment, wherever you are, you're here with us in Decision Space. Welcome to Decision Space, a podcast about the decisions in games that takes place between the turns of your favorite board game. I'm Jake. And I'm Brendan. And today we are covering Underwater Cities, a board game designed by Vladimir Suchi. Uh, published by Delicious Games in 2018. And it's a one to four player game that I cannot wait to talk about.
1: Yeah, I'm super excited about this one too, Jake. This is another, we've been banging through last week, Res Arcana and now Underwater Cities, games that I was just super excited to play and disappointed that I wasn't quote unquote going to get to play them during the pandemic. And now look at us, here we are.
0: Thank you to the volunteer, I'm sure, coders who are uh, putting these, digital implementations online for us. This one is online at yukata.de. So head over there uh, and you can play the game for free there. You can also support the site if you're in a position to do so. And I think it's a really a really a quality thing that has certainly improved my life over the course of this uh, tough time.
1: Yeah, likewise. Decision Space Fan Club over here. So definitely check out Yukata if you haven't. I guess that's next week. Uh, This is when we typically tell you when a game is coming. Next week, we're going to have a discussion episode. So you have one week off from game playing. So so play something you've been hankering to play and suggest we should cover it in the future. And then do you want to hop into your synopsis first, Jake? Sure. Underwater Cities. It's a
0: worker placement game. But like, dude, what if the workers were cards whoa (laughs) (laughs) and i've given this a 9.5 out of 10 i think this game is a masterpiece a modern classic that will stand the test of time
1: i'm like speechless (laughs) this is a one-liner i was like what's coming next it was (laughs) just the joke so good okay Wait. Underwater Cities is a voyage to the promised land of big games built on bite-sized decisions. Watching your civilization unfold before you as you tinker, amend, and upgrade, and expand is as rewarding as it is entrancing. Micro decisions with macro consequences abound, and there's just the right amount of feedback to smooth out the learning curve without restricting this underwater playground and leave you in a just-once-more-turn trance. A little more. <gasps> Deep breath. The design <laughs> shows great respect for its players, offering them meaningful independence while leaving room for them to truly experience failure if they charted a course too far astray. I'm already ready for my next forway, foray into the life aquatic with Vladimir Succi. Nine out of ten. Awesome.
0: Yeah, this game's so great. I'm glad that you enjoy it as well, uh, almost as much as I do. And I also love how you had to take a deep breath before going <laughs> back underwater to, to finish <laughs> that uh, short essay. Uh, but that, that was really wonderful.
1: It's a, it's a beautiful game. It, deserved, it deserves some meat. I think that it truly, Masterpiece is not, I, I don't think that's too far. I think Underwater Cities is a game people are going to be playing for a long time.
0: Great. Well, let's give the folks uh, here with us in the decision space a better idea of how to play Underwater Cities uh, with your amazing rules overview.
1: Underwater Cities is a card-driven economic city building game with an emphasis on hand management. In their personal play spaces, players work to build networks of underwater cities connected by tunnels and support those cities with economic buildings, farms, desalination plants, and laboratories. These buildings produce different resources for the players during the game's production phase, which occurs at the end of the game's three eras, at which point their cities also consume one kelp, a requirement that if not met will force players to pay a steep penalty. Each of the game's three eras are composed of three rounds, each of which have three turns, lending the game a nested style feel. In each round, players take turns choosing an action from a shared open display of actions. Once a player has selected an action, it's blocked from all other players for the remainder of the round. These actions gain players resources, allow them to manipulate their board by adding or upgrading buildings, place or trigger cards in their personal tableau, or by allowing them to draw additional cards or affect the turn order of the following round. Importantly, the game's action spaces come in three colors, and to claim an action space, players will play a card from their hand. If the color of the card played matches the color of the chosen action slot, the player also gains a benefit from the card they played. If the city building mechanism in Underwater Cities is the mechanical heart of the game, then this worker placement card matching system is its mechanical soul. Players gain victory points in Underwater Cities by building certain buildings, which then produce victory points, connecting their cities via tunnels to nearby metropolises, or by expanding resources to buy special game-end victory point-granting cards that reward the player for certain resources or building conditions. The player with the most points at the end of Underwater Cities is declared the victor. As always, Underwater Cities is a very complex game, so I recommend taking a quick look at the rulebook online or just Googling the game and taking a look at a picture of it to get a better sense for the discussion we're about to have.
0: Hopefully, uh, that gives you a little bit of a better idea of how to play Underwater Cities, or at least what's happening in this game. But Brendan, do you want to maybe touch on uh, not just the rules, but kind of the thematic what this game is about?
1: Yeah, so when you hold this rulebook in your hand for Underwater City, there's a really loving explanation at the beginning of the game, and I'm going to read it to you. The next frontier. The Earth is overpopulated. The colonization of Mars is four decades away. Four decades. Only one avenue is open for human expansion, the world under the sea. And I just love that Vladimir Suchi felt like he had to explain why this isn't a game about Mars colonization. And like, in the rulebook, I'm just addressing this up front, y'all. It's not about Mars, okay? Um, it's just hilarious to me. It's so board game meta. So I felt remiss. We'd be remiss not sharing that with y'all. Yeah,
0: that's so funny. Uh, And and Terraforming Mars is a game that this that Underwater Cities is compared to a lot. I think it's a good comparison in some ways. Uh, You know, you're doing some futuristic civilization building. It's run with a kind of card engine and there's a tableau building element, but they're also very different games in other ways. So it's It's funny that uh, Suchi is putting his foot down saying, no, we're going down under.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's it's interesting that he directly basically invites that comparison in some ways. And we mentioned that we might want to do a few other game comparisons at the outset. And I don't, I think this is going to catch you off guard as a comparison. But I, and it's far heavier than this game. But the first time I played Underwater Cities, it activated similar parts of my brain as Catan, just in the like building of my map. Um, and like building of my network in terms of infrastructure. So. If yeah, you have yeah. someone who loves that aspect of Catan, I could see them, and if they're ready to buckle in and and hop in the submarine and go for it, a, a much, much heavier game, I could see this actually working for someone who loves that game.
0: Totally, yeah. Uh, specifically with building the tunnels yes. and connecting your cities together. Uh, yeah, I, I can see that apt comparison there. At first, I thought you were saying that the game you were going to bring up is much heavier. and I was Oh, like, no. <laughs> <laughs> I like, can't. I, I don't think I can follow you that far. But actually, I do think I do think in, in that regard it's a good comparison. Other games that are uh, mentioned a lot for this, for something similar but lighter, I actually haven't played this game, but it's perhaps number one on my want to play playlist. Uh, but thought I'd bring it up because I've I've seen it compared so much online is Everdell, which is another mm. tableau building card game with a worker placement component. That by all accounts is just a, a totally lovely game. So if, if you like that, uh, maybe Underwater Cities would be for you.
1: So I haven't played Everdell, Jake. Really quickly, what's the like connection? Is it the the worker placement style cards?
0: Uh, no. So I think in Everdell you actually it's more of a traditional worker placement where you have uh, pawns that you go out and take spaces. But a lot of the spaces mean you're uh, collecting different cards and you're kind of building a city. Of cards out in front of you, and there's synergies there. Uh, so I think it's just the the work, the worker placement elements, and with a heavy focus on on cards and, and engine building. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. Did you have any other comparisons to make? No, I think I think those two cover it perfectly. Okay, so let's blast off and get right into the decisions in this game. Uh, let's look around this decision space and see what we can find. And explore. So first up, what I'm seeing over here is the multiple layers of decision making in underwater cities.
1: Yeah, one thing that struck me about underwater cities, and it's just to be clear, this this space that we're in is just huge. It's looking around, I, I'm shocked by how large it is. But luckily, Vladimir Suchi has done such a good job of. Uh, one thing I love about this game is the way in which the turn structure is so straightforward. You, you play a card from your hand into one of the, the worker placement slots that's available. They're constricting as rounds go on. Uh, and then you do the action and you resolve your card effect if it matches the color of the slot that you played into. And that's it. But the the consequences of the choices that you make are just massive, uh, potentially, as they sort of ripple out. And I think that it is such a perfect pairing between like the the design of the game sort of constricting just enough while giving you lots of choices on any given turn. Don't get me wrong. There's a huge amount of combinations of things you could be doing, um, but it feels so manageable every time it comes around and it's always exciting.
0: Yeah, right. Exactly. I think that is the genius of this uh, action selection mechanism is it's so fun to play with. Like, it's just fun to see what your cards are, which spaces you can and in- Match up to to get the full bonus, uh, and just explore like what do I think is the best of these combinations, but it also does such a good job of focusing you to make that feel a little bit more manageable,
1: yeah, definitely. And the one thing that struck me about Underwater Cities, Jake, is that on your turn, you're either getting more stuff or you're building stuff that will get you more stuff in the future. And more points, and I think that that actually makes the core loop of the game incredibly rewarding because the act of building your city is the act of getting points, and there's a bunch more stuff sort of stapled onto it, but it means that almost everything that you do in the game feels good because you either are getting rewarded for making decisions that you've already made, or you're getting stuff to make decisions that will get you more stuff in the future, and it's just like you're being flooded with with options, basically.
0: Yeah. So when you say core loop, um, like, what do you mean by that specifically?
1: Okay. So the core loop of I'm acquiring resources to build things on my board that are going to get me more resources and also victory points. So I think that there's a different version of underwater cities where the building of your city doesn't give you victory points at the same time as giving you resources. The way that production works here, It means that you're basically rewarded both ways. And there's so many different paths that you can go down. But the act of building your city is the act of getting points in the game. And I think that makes it intrinsically rewarding.
0: Totally. Yeah, and it's so tight the way uh, the cost of building buildings, the output of buildings, and the way they give you points are all tied together in, in such a cohesive way. There is a lot of complexity there but it makes it feel a little bit more manageable just because you can really easily sort of track that through line all the way. Like, okay, I pay one uh, credit for this building that's going to give me cr- one credit during production. You know, And at the end of the game, it'll give me one point because it's attached to this city.
1: Totally. And it makes you, I think... F- feel like you don't have, you're not potentially making a wrong decision. I maybe jumped ahead a little bit there just because I was just so excited to talk about how rewarding that core loop of play is. And I think that it sort of the game in a way forces you to make decisions that you don't always want to make because you have to make the best with the situation that you're in because of the shared nature of the the worker placement slots in those three different colors um, and wanting to match card color to slot as much as possible. So I guess really quickly as an, an example, the first time we played this game, Jake, I saw that you built two desalination plants really early on. There's a worker placement spot that lets you build two of them. So I sort of in a future game thought, oh, that seems like a really good thing to do on your first turn. And I, I was going first in the second turn. I locked them up and then that takes that action away from you, which I think is really interesting in that my actions are affecting you, even though I'm not directly uh, interacting with you almost in any way. But the blocking, sometimes blocking can just be totally devastating in a worker placement game. And I think that it has the potential to be here too. But because there's so many different viable paths, I think it when I block something from you, it's just inviting you to solve your problem in a different creative way.
0: Right. I totally agree. And I think, um, you know, a lot of times in, in worker placement games, that's where you've seen most like the interaction between players. And I think that is the case here as well. There's a f- interaction in a few other ways. There's uh, kind of shared uh, end game scoring goals that can be claimed. So you could take one that somebody else wants. There's an extra module uh, that you can choose to play with or not that kind of has some interim objectives. That's sort of a first to the post type deal where you can get like a few bonus points here or there. Uh, So there are a couple other ways, but I think, yeah, the majority of the interaction between players is in those worker placement spaces. And at least for me, and maybe this speaks to just like the weight and complexity of the game, I'm almost purely always focusing on maximizing my own strategy and points. And like, if that happens to take away a space uh, you really want or need, you know, I guess that's a bonus, but that's generally not... The, my priority there there are times when it comes up like uh at the very last turn of a round, right before we're going to produce if i look over and see that uh, my, one of my opponents has a bunch of one type of resource that they they clearly want to spend to you know make more uh kelp plants or want to upgrade their buildings and if i can swoop in and take that spot knowing it's going to harm their production uh then i that would be factored into my thinking for sure
1: yeah, definitely. And I think part of that, too, is there's so many viable worker placement slots to go in. So it, the, it pairs down as rounds go on, as turns go on, but then it opens up again. And also, too, I think one thing that we both really like about this game is the hand management system and the fact that cards are actions and workers. Um, and I know for me, one thing that I I love about that and adore about this game being worker placement in that way is in an, Typical worker placement game that uses pawns, I know exactly the options that are available to you in most cases because they're open information on the board in front of us. Whereas when you have a a hand of cards that you're looking at that have uh, actions on them tied to colors that allow you to do different things, they're different than what's on the board generally. They're not going to do exactly the same things in the same ways. But... I can't, I don't, there's just enough uncertainty that it doesn't make sense for me to try to target you. And I I love that about this game.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's not only uncertainty when it comes to blocking. Like there could be a spot that I need to take that requires a resource that you don't have. But maybe you have a card in your hand that gives you that resource. So you could just play that card onto the spot, get the resource and then spend it in one go. Uh, and, and you know, I could not see that coming. Um, and I think that's really important because, again, that reduces kind of the analysis paralysis that a lot of people will experience in this game.
1: Yeah, it lets you focus on your own decisions. And there's so many to make just about your own space that having the permission from the design to not worry about other people's boards too much is... Oh, it's so nice. Yeah, I,
0: I mean, I think this this is... The mechanism, like, you know, it's not worker placement, it's card placement. And I think that is just absolutely brilliant. You know, it to me, it makes the worker placement mechanic, which is fun, just like so fresh and new up. I, I, I was trying to do a little bit of research on if this is the first time something like this has been done. You know, all game design is iterative based on things that c- come before it. So I, I, you don't want to say like, yes, this thing, this was just like a pure stroke of individual genius. But I don't think there are that I could find uh, games that do worker placement in this way. And I I just think it's so smart. And I think it's so ripe as like a new kind of mechanic that I hope is like iterated upon. Like, I think that this system could be used in so many games because it's just works so well and is so fun.
1: Yeah, I, I definitely hope it's not the last game that uses this. There's a, uh, the the fact that the way in which the workers, so there's the three colors of actions on the board and the strongest cards are linked to the weakest worker placement spots and the weakest wor- worker placement spots are linked with the strongest card effects. And I think that pairing is really brilliant and brings the game to life. I think a weaker designer would have made like, oh, these are the powerful spots and the powerful cards, but it creates so much sort of texture and we can talk about the decisions that arise from that uh that sort of philosophy. But really quickly before we do that, I watched a GDC talk by Susan McKinley Ross. She's the designer of Quirkle. Uh, and the talk is called Design Epiphanies from Quirkle and Other Games. And it's, it's online, it's free. And I really recommend anyone interested in game design listen to that talk. And one thing she talks about is that one thing she thinks modern games could do better is having more room for bingos. And what she means by that are like moments in a game where Everything lines up for the player perfectly, and it's this uh, really exciting, like sort of um, sort of moment of. your stars aligning. I I don't know if there's a better way to put it. And I think when you, this game of Underwater Cities does that really well, because when you play a card that matches the color and the card effect does what you need to enable the the worker placement slot, you get to pick the order that you resolve them. So let's say you like resolve your card. It sets you up for your slot. You resolve the slot and then you build these sort of things and that allows you to get a bunch of points in the end uh, or maybe set up for the next round perfectly. All of those things can come together on any given turn of the game. And it's it feels so good. And I think Underwater Cities is a game that has bingos and it's great.
0: Yeah, th- I think that's a really excellent point. And yeah, I couldn't agree more. It, but I think too, in order to have that, there has to be like the opportunity for things to not come together. Uh, and Underwater Cities does that well too, because the... the <laughs> because the action slots right always take effect but you only get the effect on the card if you line up and there is a, a lot of opportunity in this game for you simply to desperately need to take a yellow space one of the most powerful actions but you don't have a yellow card in your hand and that decision feels so bad if you're like I have to like forego an entire half of my turn. I think the card effects are roughly equivalent in power to the uh, action effects. And, or, you know, in, in some cases, they're more powerful if you're taking one of the weaker actions, as you already alluded to. So to like skip out on half your turn to take an action you need to, to take
1: feels awful. <laughs> totally. And no, it's such a good point that to have bingos, you have to leave room for failure. And I've had some dumpster fire of turns. Um, and I... It's great. It feels it feels good to feel bad sometimes.
0: It also sets up like
1: one thing that I think
0: is really fascinating in this game, which is that not only are there the resources that you need to build actual components onto your board to score points, There's almost like a separate little economy with cards because a lot of the actions and cards in the game give you the ability to draw more cards. And I think that is super fascinating Like when you want to take those actions um, because you're foregoing getting something that's actually going to score you points in a concrete way. Cards are never going to give you points at the end of the game just for having cards. And in fact, you always have to discard down to three cards at the start of your turn anyway but having more access to cards absolutely like smooths out your game and gives you the ability to have more bingos as you put it so that is just one of my absolute favorite aspects in the game is that tension between advancing your actual end game and and then smoothing out the turbulence that might come your way
1: yeah i have two thoughts in response to that one i love that the uh there's a spot on the board that is actually independent of the three colors that we've talked about that's just the always on spot and it lets you as jake said draw two extra cards and then gain two credits and that's actually costed such that early on in the game It's not unreasonable to go to that spot. Correct me if I'm wrong.
0: There are times when it's good to go there, for sure. But you want to be taking double actions, I think, as much as possible in this game.
1: Totally. But there's definitely times where you need the credits. And if you don't have another way to get it, it's not like you feel like you've failed being there. At least I haven't. You're significantly better at the game than me. But like... Because of the fact that another thing we haven't touched on yet in the discussion, at least, is the fact that there's also at the same time as this card worker placement game, this economic building game going on in the board in front of you, the card worker placement is happening off to the left. You're also playing a tableau building game in front of you where you're collecting cards that are uh, setting up actions that have sort of always on effects potentially or actions that tie to different worker placement spots so you have this really interesting sense of progression where early on you can kind of define the strategy that you're going to go for based on sort of the external rewards of the cards that you see out there your metropolises we'll get we'll get to those later but those are like the external sort of uh victory conditions definitely
0: yeah and it's really fun because you really start resource poor in this game to contrast with Res Arcana, which we talked about last week. If you haven't yet, I'd recommend checking out that episode for kind of our discussion on the inverse of this, where you start out resource rich. But here in Underwater Cities, you start out so poor that in that first round, you are scraping by to, you know, be able to do anything right you're just trying yeah. to like build as much as humanly possible but by the end of the game if you're successful in building up a strong engine like the opposite is true you're just like how can i spend all of these resources like i like take my money like how can i you know most efficiently like spend all this stuff and turn it into points so uh you really get that sense of progression which is such a fun thing to experience in games
1: yeah it's so good at taking you from feeling small and and like completely powerless to having so so much in the scope of two hours and that's i don't know that i've ever experienced a better civ building game in a two-hour window it it triggers every spot of my brain that like a game of civil Mirror civilization the computer game does but in a in a tiny little space and i it i think it's so commendable for that
0: i would say two hours strikes me as short two hours probably for two people but it probably the t- kind of game that's almost like an hour or 45 minutes per person. Mm, yeah. I think I think if you're playing a four player game of this, if if you get do- that done in 3 hours, you're you're moving at a good clip. This is a, a
1: long game. A quick detour question for you. Yeah. Do you see would you is this a game you want to play at more than two players?
0: That's an interesting question.
1: You know, I've I think
0: so. One thing that's fun with more players is the number of action spots opens up. Mm. The number of actual places you can go is variable. And I think that with more players, it's it's kind of interesting. You get to have even more room to explore and and see what your best options are and possible courses for your turn to take. So I do feel like that's something that is actually a value to having more players, even though uh, interaction is pretty minimal to the point where where some would say it's bordering on multiplayer solitaire. So I totally get the criticism and why people would say, you know, this is best at two players. But I actually think there there are absolute merits to playing it at higher player counts.
1: Definitely. I think one other merit that I'll mention really quickly is also just seeing other people's underwater cities at the end. This is definitely a game that has a toy-like nature and that you really feel like you've accomplished something when you've built something by the end of it. And I think spending the time and experiencing that together and then getting to admire how other people have built their cities can be really cool.
0: So it's just cause we're talking about this now, like, uh-oh, I'm starting to sense a little bit of like turbulence around uh, in this decision space. Can I bring up one potential issue that yes. I find with this game? Totally, that's turbulent. Oh, uh, This is your captain speaking. We are now approaching a little bit of turbulence. Please return to your seats and buckle your safety belts. This game, gameplay-wise, is a 10 out of 10 for me. Mm -hmm. The only reason it loses points is because of the fiddly nature of the game and playing in person. So much of the actions in this game involve like resource conversion. So it wouldn't be a stretch to say that your turn will be going to an action that gives you three different resources And then using a card that allows you to play two buildings that cost two different, you know, two resources, but you have a passive effect that allows you to get a one credit discount for playing that action, you know, for playing that ability. And just like tracking all this, there is a lot of opportunity when you're playing live for resource totals to get a little bit fuzzy, especially because it's such a heads down game that it kind of feels like it's possible for just small things to get missed here and there. And the same is true on production where towards the end of the game, you might be producing 30 different individual components. So, you know, it's just possible for things to get messed up. And my experience playing this game live, which has been limited was that people have been like skeptical of each other. And I think that is just an unfortunate, you know, reality of, a game that scales kind of in this to this magnitude, it's great playing online because the game handles all that for you. And I just think that's like weird and kind of worth pointing out that like, in some ways, I think this game might be even better online than in person.
1: Yeah, I think there's video game designers who do paper prototypes for their video game. And I think if you put underwater cities down in front of someone and said, this is a paper prototype for a video game you would not second guess it just because the the tracking burden that it places on the player is, is so high. I think that's a really fair nitpick, Jake. And I, ha- having only played this game on Yukata, I don't have any of the sort of perspective of being disappointed that there's so much fiddly stuff or even just so much tracking to do. And I think that if there was an app, I'd be all over that too, just because I love the fact that I don't have to worry about it. It's also a fiddly game. There's a lot of pieces and components and like setting this game up, I think would be cumbersome also.
0: Yeah, suffice it to say, there's just a lot of like administrative overhead to this game that slightly detracts, like the, the mechanisms are so elegant and wonderful to explore, uh, but there's a lot to track there.
1: While we're in Turbulence, as we, we've hit this rough patch, I'm going to mention my one point of Turbulence too, and it's something that we haven't gotten into, but we'll swing back to, and I think it will make sense. And that's that the, the game comes with a fair amount of modules that you can plug in, which I think is cool. There's advanced player boards, and then there's these things called government contracts, where which are yet another reward or goal mechanism in the game. There's a lot in this game already, and these are shared rewards that are achievable by only one player. So sometimes games will have shared rewards where it doesn't matter um, who gets there first, or maybe whoever achieves this a shared goal gets a benefit for that shared goal. In Underwater Cities, it's an all or nothing shared goal. So if uh, you're playing a two-player game with your co-host, and they see and chart a path to three out of the four, and maybe four out of four, we'll see, uh, shared government contract goal cards, and you miss out on them completely, it can, take the, it, it can become the game. I think it puts so much of itself onto, onto the other mechanisms that are already working so well that for me, they don't necessarily need to be there, those government contract cards specifically. Though I will say, I could see if this was a game that I played 25 times, which is a game that I might want to play 25 times. I, I probably do want to play 25 times. Uh, wanting those to mix things up. But I think that in so many ways... Jake and I, or I guess I shouldn't speak for both of us. So maybe in this one respect, I can. We admire the design so much, and it doesn't show a lot of restraint. And this is one way in which I kind of wish it did.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. Like I, I have no problem with extra modules being included in games, especially if it's not at a crazy extra cost to consumer. I think you know it. It reads as more variability, and that's what it is. But at the same time, I wish more games. Had sort of in their box, like, yeah, we're giving you this stuff, but this is the definitive experience. Like, this is what I, the designer uh, and creator of the experience, recommend to you as the best way to play this game. Because similarly, with the advanced contracts, uh, there's advanced player boards that change the game in interesting, but I don't know if better ways. It just kind of makes more restrictions on, on how you build and, um, yeah. So again, I, 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 I kind of don't have a preference on playing with any of these components or without, uh, but it'd be nice if I'd be interested to know what the designer like thinks is what, how does he play it when he gets together with his friends?
1: Yeah, totally. I, I agree. My quick take on those player boards is that I think they raise the skill floor maybe without raising the skill ceiling. Yeah,
0: maybe skill floor and skill ceiling will be a great discussion topic for a future episode. Cool. But let's, let's kind of jump back into some more of the decisions in Underwater Cities.
1: So maybe the next best place to jump into is the VP, the sort of the reward system in general. So talking about the victory points that are granted by your boards and sort of the so the intrinsic rewards and then the extrinsic rewards of like your metropolises and special cards do you think that's a good space to go next jake
0: totally and i think uh correct me if i'm wrong but maybe just the more an easier way to describe what we're talking about here is this to me is the strategic element of the game right it's the the end result how are you going to get points and what is the path you're charting uh to those points and i do think it's there's an interesting kind of diversity in viable paths to victory in this game.
1: Yeah, Underwater Cities, I think, strikes the perfect balance between having the intrinsic wards, the sort of building your buildings for the sake of building your buildings and having that be fun and getting victory points with having the external modifiers, uh, which are variable, being meaningful. I think this game balances those expertly. And it means every game that you sit down, if you know how to play underwater cities, you're going to be comfortable, but it's going to feel fresh. And I can't remember a game I've played previously that I think strikes the balance quite as well as this game. So strategically, maybe the best place to go from there. Well, I'm curious, what do you think? Are metropolises maybe the sort of first place your brain goes?
0: When I first sat down to play this game, having no idea, the first thing I did was try to build out my city and connect the metropolises. That is the most direct way to points that, yes. that uh, my brain was able to chart anyway. And specifically, we're talking about the metropolis that is furthest away from your starting area. So you you have to build all the way across your player board. And if you're able to do that, and connect your system to the metropolis at the far corner, you are able to gain some victory points in the base game. This is points based on the number of cities. There's also some for the number of tunnels you build between cities, uh, some for the number of special cards you build. And I think one is also for the number of cities that you have fully outfitted with the three different building types.
1: And that one's really interesting to me because I think that one takes the most planning. So in every city, Underwater Cities is a game of exceptions, but on every city, there's three spots where you can build either a farm, a desalination plant, or a laboratory, or you can build any combination of those three things. Then you also have a special secret site that you can build to sometimes via cards. And I think that's another thing, Jake, that goes back to those bingos. And I... The planning that that sort of puts of like, I need resources, so I need to build these buildings, but I want to make sure that my cities are perfectly arranged and this city is not connected to my network yet, so can I afford to build these buildings there? That to me brings the game so much back to that like micro versus macro decisions of trying to decide how much you can get away with, how how hard you can push.
0: Totally. Yeah, there's a really interesting tension too, because uh, as you upgrade buildings, they're worth more resources to you and more resources to you in production and having two of the same type upgraded on one city gives you an extra bonus but that's not the most efficient way to score points which is points based on a number of different building types you have there so there's kind of that tension between points and production there but i think no matter what scoring metropolis you have on your board it does do a really good job of directing you because not only is it putting the goal in your mind to finish your city to a point they're able to connect it, but also just a general strategy of like, I'm not only trying to do that, but I'm also doing that while keeping a mind to building as many tunnels as I can.
1: Yeah, I think that underwater cities, because of this system, because of the system of you get more points if you have one of each uh, building type tied to a city, does a really good job of putting objectives within reach at or at any point in a in a round or a turn order. So that's another thing that I really admire about this game is that the sort of the objective achievement comes out emergently just in the way that rewards are designed in the game. And it happens really organically because of that.
0: I think that this game really does a wonderful job of presenting multiple viable paths to victory um, because while well, that is, I think, the most obvious uh a strategy of maximizing that metropolis scoring, uh, you can definitely win games of underwater cities without connecting to that space at all yeah. uh, by simply just trying to maximize um, points from you know, the buildings you're able to build or by trying to claim more than your fair share of the scoring, uh, end of game scoring cards that are available in the middle of the table um or simply just try one thing you can produce in the production phase is just straight up points and you know there's a, there's a way to play this game uh called the kelp strategy where you're just trying to build kelp and maximize your point production um and that can be an effective strategy as well
1: the let them eat kelp strategy
0: yeah <laughs> yeah i, I do want. i did want to say um Because I've heard this spread around that this kelp strategy is overpowered. So I did a little bit of research into it. Based on what I can tell, the community around this game has come to a near consensus that this strategy is not overpowered with advanced play and in fact might not even be that good. However, it does seem that people have had the experience of in in their initial plays uh, having a hard time combating this strategy. So in fairness to criticism, criticism, Lovely levied at Res Arcana around perceived balance. I think perhaps uh, fair is fair. There could be some criticism here uh, if if a lot of people first playing this game are seeing this strategy is overpowered. Uh, then that could be a, a, a negative play experience, and that's totally fair.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I actually, so I'm not, I haven't experienced that in the game either. I'm trying it in a a game I'm playing currently. And I actually think that this sort of, um, we've talked a lot about how there's so many different viable, truly viable paths to victory, which leads to lots of potential decisions. And that's good. And I think that games having perceived dominant strategies that through repeat plays are understood to actually be suboptimal can be a really good thing for games because they uh, It gives players more room to experience mastery. Um, So who knows if this was intentional or not, that this is in the game. I usually think that designers do intentionally design things like this. Um, But if that's the case, I would just like to highlight that I think that it's really cool that something like that is in the game if it's not truly dominant, which it seems like it's not. Yeah,
0: I agree. But just to my subjective experience with uh, kind of the strategic elements of this game, like, I think it's really fun because it does, you are presented each game, whether you're playing with the base game where, you know, the only variable setup is what metropolises you get, you know, or you're playing uh, with the advanced modules, which add asymmetry through player boards. You know, you're always presented with a slightly different challenge at the beginning of the game um, that, that will help you to shape your strategy. But as you're saying, uh, unlike in some other games, you know, your strategy is really not set in stone. Uh, And I think based on the cards you're drawing and what, you know, what you're able to put in your tableau, you can, you know, slowly over time shift your strategy into a new direction uh, and, and be successful with that.
1: Definitely. Yeah, it's I love that Underwater Cities is a game that asks you to make a plan, rewards you for making a plan, but invites you to change it if you want. Could you I think on this point, though, Jake, one thing I've been dying to ask you all week can you talk us through your take on the decision space of the special cards, the endgame victory scoring cards that are in the base game that you can claim by paying credits and taking a special action on your turn in one of the green action slots?
0: Yeah, so where you claim them actually depend. interestingly to oh, me it's red. anyway. It yeah. depends based on the number of players you're playing with. I, I could, could be wrong, but I think at four players, it's a yellow action. Really? Uh, okay. And yeah, so... Like I said, there's these, or like you said, there's uh, end game scoring that are cards that can be claimed. And then in order to get points with them, it's not enough to simply claim them, but you actually have to spend time to take another action to play it into your tableau and doing that costs money. While you could take one on your first turn in the early parts of the game, you just don't have enough money to for that to feel really viable, you know, because I think it costs three money to play one of these into your tableau and you start with three money total. So that would be all your money and then you're not able to get any kind of money engine going. Uh, Though, I'm sure there are edge cases where that could be a viable strategy. Um, I haven't personally explored that. So there's this interesting ramp up where nobody really wants to take them early in the game because of that uh, cost. And you could, and then simply just leave it in your hand Uh, Until you have your money engine going but then of course there's the cost with that as well, which is not only foregoing opportunity to expand, you know, build your engine early, it's taking up a card slot, uh, giving you less options for cards to play as you'd always be discarding something else. Um, But it is interesting that that is an option available to the players. So As you play the game, you know it seems that in the second round, people towards the end of the second round is when I see most people beginning to grab one of these, and I think that makes a lot of sense because especially if you grab it with one of your later actions in the second round, and then you're typically producing just like a ton of money in the third round. That's sort of the best time to play the cards, um, where where money is the has the least drawback to you for spending it, and in fact you want to be spending it. Uh, but you know, a lot of people will be thinking along the same lines. So if you wait to the third phase, uh, that action slot will be frequently taken. So you can s- find yourself in a scenario where you're blocked out. I think it's a really cool mechanic. It's something that was off-putting to me initially when I first started learning the game because I think it's there's a, a high barrier to entry for just like understanding like when it would make sense to take one of these cards. But in practice, I think it is fairly intuitive. Generally, a good strategy, I think, is just focusing on your Metropolises and then finding one of those cards, whichever one works the best with what you're already doing, Uh, and, and just trying to take and build one seems to be pretty successful. But it could be your whole strategy in and of itself if you're like, I'm just going to get money and try and claim as many of these as possible, taking them away from other people.
1: Yeah, I think the decision to have these cards be cards that you have to exert energy to acquire and then exert energy to play is brilliant because it it really amplifies the effects of that game of chicken of I want that card, but I don't want to give up the opportunity cost that it's going to take into claiming it and building it or claiming it and then having it sit in my hand. Um, I think it plays into the themes of planning so well. And it's that sort of little extra element of like, you have to set up for it and then you have to play it again. And making the innate cost be those credits, yes, but also the doubled opportunity cost is so smart and it it keeps the game that's such a big game and has so many potential, uh, there are so many potential edge cases. I think of like if a player pushes too far in one direction and somehow the design of underwater cities, including these cards, because of the costing, it doesn't ever feel like it goes off the rails in a way that it feels like it broke. It just goes off the rails in ways where it feels like someone made lots of really smart choices or decisions. And that's so great. I, the
0: reason I love this decision too, in, in addition to everything you've said is because of the tension of when to claim one, yes. yeah. um, exists you're most often you'll be taking one of these scoring objectives before you've achieved that objective to its optimal state. Yeah. Um, so there's an element of that where of calling your shot, which I love in game. I think we spoke about that in our discussion on Kanagawa, yeah. uh, with kind of the scoring tiles and that as well. But you're saying like this is what I'm going to achieve whenever you take that card and then you try to do it. And that just psychological element of planning uh and then you know achieving it feels doubly great. Cause you're like, I said I was gonna do it and then I didn't, where on the Hindsight, if you take one and then ultimately, you know, you're not quite able to pump as many points out of it as you wanted, you're, you know, one turn short from getting a couple extra points, Uh, it gives you that really, you know, it's not, it doesn't feel good, it feels bad, but it's it's giving you that really direct feedback of, hey, at least I know where I went wrong in this game, which for me always makes me want to, you know, boot up the game and play another round. Uh, compared to some other games where it's like, yeah, I lost, I'm not really
1: sure why. Definitely. I think two two quick follow-ups. One, in terms of it being about timing, I'm really glad that you made that explicit because when I brought up the game of chicken, that's what I was hoping to emphasize some. But I think it's really important that that is explicit because fundamentally, Underwater Cities is an economic game And usually, but not always, Underwater Cities has some other ways that it muddles this, like the cards in your hand, but economic games have right and wrong decisions, and that can be frustrating as a player. And I think when you introduce elements of timing into a game, it turns it into a judgment call, especially when there's uncertainty with the actions that are going to be available and other things going on. And I think those judgment calls like that are what make for really interesting decision spaces. And this does that in spades. And then also as a follow-up, uh, having only played this game in the virtual table of Yukata, I even there this works where someone goes and claims one of these cards earlier than you would expect, and it's a gobsmacking moment. Jake, you did this in one of our games. You claimed this in round, uh, fairly early round one. You took a special card recently, and or maybe it was early in round. two Two. or era Uh, two probably two yeah yeah, era two i should say this game has turns and rounds and eras which we'll touch on briefly i think um but it early in era two and i was just shocked i i'm actually (laughs) i messaged you and i was like jake like was this early like what is going on and i could just imagine that being a really exciting moment at a physical table too where everyone's just like jaws dropped Yeah,
0: totally. Yeah. And it's like, if you know you want it, you gotta gotta go get it. You gotta snatch it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I think it's awesome that this game gives you that opportunity. Um, So real quick, before we wrap up, let's do talk about kind of the shape of the decision tree and the arc of this game, because I think it's important to kind of get a full understanding. And maybe if you're listening along with us, you're joining (laughs) us here in the decision space and thinking if this game is maybe for you, Uh, that this could be helpful.
1: Yeah, so every game has a decision tree, and and the shape of that tree uh, really varies based on the structure of the game, right? So... Some games have really narrow trees where you're making fairly similar decisions every time you go through. Like Kanagawa is a good example of this. It's a fairly tall decision tree that branches out at the end as you add more different elements to your tableau. And if you've never played Kanagawa, go listen to our episode on it. Um, But other games have really broad trees where they start really broad at the base and there's tons of options. Um, and they stay really broad from there, your decisions lead to even more decisions, and those decisions lead to even more decisions. And I think underwater cities splits that difference really well because of the, the turn order or your turns being dictated by your cards. I think as large as it, as it is, it every branch always comes back to this core decision of you're making the choice between uh three or four, usually three actions on your turn, and maybe a couple different s- and then slots from there. So the branches just branch out in this really interesting way where and I think that it, it just has this really interesting uh way in which it ushers the player through the decision three tree, through the decision space by saying there's all these different paths you could go on, but look at these three, these three tunnels. What do you think, Jake?
0: To me, this is just like uh, again, kind of goes back to how how well and how much work the action selection mechanism of using cards as the workers in a worker placement game is doing here, um, because it just makes things manageable. Yeah, wh- which could otherwise be like you can imagine this game as you know, if you could just take any card and go anywhere, it would just not. I think it would just wouldn't feel as good. Because it would just be overwhelming in terms of choice. And and it, here you always have some frame of reference, you know, you're, that you can cling to based on like the cards you have, based on like the Metropolis goal, based on whatever, you know, you always kind of know what that immediate objective is. So you don't have to really spend too much brain power on that tunnel over here and this tunnel over there. I can just focus on. These two or three branches in front of me at any given time, even though
1: I know there's so much more happening in the periphery. Definitely. And in terms of taking a lesson away from underwater cities for the way that we talk about games in the future and decision spaces, I think that that's a very strong aspect of this game, that its decision tree is large uh, and is very broad and it has a lot of branches um, I could see a game that was a really large decision tree, a large decision space, but didn't have a ton of branches that themselves have lots of branches. Um, and those branches al- with on each branch, we're getting into the weeds here, oh into God. the kelp, but those branches on branches really help narrow the player's focus in a way that makes it feel manageable. Totally.
0: And I think, you know, the structure here of the game is always interesting because it's always dynamic, right? Yes. You spoke to that. It's growing and shrinking at various points throughout the game uh, to where it it's just, that makes it, I think, more exciting, right? Cause you can be in the middle of the game. You're like, Oh, I have, there's nothing I can really do. Uh, and then one turn later, you know, when you enter the third era and you're like, I have, you know, the whole world at my fingertips, like I can do anything. This is so great. Uh, so, you know, that just, creates, I think, like a really interesting texture to those decision spaces that, that keep it interesting and keep it from uh, being samey in a way that I think some other games that are similarly in this kind of heavy, middle middle heavyweight Euro sphere uh, can kind of suffer from.
1: Definitely. I love that this game has a three-act structure, like quite literally, it has three eras. And the fact that you produce at the, well, you start with them and then you, you start with resources and then you produce at the end of each round it just makes the pacing of the game so interesting. It In some ways, it almost feels like running, you're managing an oxygen tank. Uh If the oxygen in this metaphor is your ability to change the board in front of you and then you get a fresh tank at the start of each round and, and that just like gives you this newfound energy that compels you forward in the game.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, it's great. I mean, it's it's just really great and it's nice too that you get to produce one last time at the end of the game because i think that makes those decisions yeah. uh, and that's only purely for scoring purposes but it makes that third round when when you've got all those resources still like it, that makes you feel powerful because you know you're going to be getting a benefit from it whereas you know i think in a lot of other games uh things shrink down to a point in the last game uh, when when scoring conditions become imminent, we're like, oh, well, only only a few things matter anymore. Uh, so it's like I have all this money, but like I'm really only just trying to do one or two things. And here it still feels like uh, the everything is open and available to you and that's really exciting.
1: Yeah, that's another great example, Jake, I feel like of making the core loop fun and letting the players do the core loop. In a a lesser game, they wouldn't have done that and the designer would have said, oh no, it's really interesting, you have to shift the type of decisions that you're making and sort of ration your resources. But Vladimir Succi has the confidence in the game and in the core loop and the gameplay within the game to let you say, no, just do the game, play the game, experience the game, do the thing that's fun and then at the end, see how it pays off. And it leads to such a richer experience. It's so fun watching yourself spend all the way down and knowing your, your production is going to explode thanks to all the buildings that you built. And then they're going to pay out in victory points. It's just, it's, a, it's like an underwater fiesta. Everything's better under the sea.
0: Well, I think there you have it um, for our discussion on the decisions and exploration of this space, the decisions in underwater cities. Uh, do you have any final thoughts uh, to leave the folks listening at home? And thank you so much for listening.
1: Yeah, seriously. Thank you so much for listening. I, I guess the only, the final thing to say is, have you played Underwater Cities? Is there something about the game that you think we missed? A decision that you love? Let us know about it. Talk to us on on social media, on Twitter. On, you can find us either at Decision Spa. D-E-C- you know how to spell decision and then it's spa at least i hope you know how to spell decision or you can uh, reach out to jake and i directly you can reach out to me uh, at burnside bh and jake at jake
0: freed that's j-a-k-e-f-r-y-d and it's funny because i've been spelling decision so much that i'm like starting to like not even recognize it as a word and it's like starting to look wrong to me <laughs> Um, But yeah, Decision Spot, that's where we are on Twitter. Please tell a friend if you're enjoying this podcast. Uh, We're having fun with it, so I hope it's fun to hear. Uh, This has been another episode of The Decision Space. Until next week, I've been Jake. And I've been Brendan. You are now exiting The Decision Space. Thanks for listening. Please take care and enjoy the rest of your game.